As you find your way back, I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. It's where we will spend a, a good portion of our time this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, the study sheet in your bulletin, I know, will be of, of good use to you as well. If you have uh, been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we are beginning our fall with a three-week preaching series, as I routinely do at the beginning of September, reminding us of some key issues that involve church life, who we are to be, what we're to do, and and things like that. And so this year, of course, three weeks, and uh, we have looked at, on Labor Day, uh, God's life-giving word, uh, how that must define us. Last week, we looked at God's glorious and messy church. God uses to shape us, and then today, as you look at the title, uh, the gospel message and the gospel method must anchor us, and uh, we'll we'll talk about things under that heading. Together, gospel message, gospel method, I have used the term gospel air, and of course, that's what you see on the screens and on your, your bulletin, but gospel air, of course, meaning that which a church breathes. You, you, you recognize it, maybe you don't even recognize it, but we ought to be breathing gospel air all the time. So that's, that's really what I'm all about today. Uh, as, we, as we get ourselves headed toward the text, I want to read uh, just a little paragraph from uh, the life of a, uh, a guy who lived nearly 200 years ago. One of the things that I do in my reading, I read a bit, as you know, and um, how God has wired me. And I I routinely read biographies of men and women who have gone before us, who have walked faithfully with God. Eh, None of them have been perfect yet. Um, But uh, I read their stories, and I want to learn from them what what made them stick to it or what mistakes did they make that I would want to avoid and so on. And one of those whose life story I've appreciated through the years is Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was a pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge, England, for for 54 years. Try that. Anything you do for 54 years, assuming it's something good, uh, man, well, that's pretty amazing. Uh, His story is remarkable because he lived at a time and in a church setting in which he was appointed to that position. The congregation had no say in it. And in fact, when he showed up, they didn't want him. No, really, they didn't. Uh, He was told to go there. He went. They actually wanted this other guy who had been an assistant to the last guy. And there was a lot of ruckus because the congregation wanted this other guy, and he didn't want that other role, and they sure didn't want him. So uh, they protested. Congregations do that periodically. Well, they did. How is a congregation to protest? Well, it's like this. Back in the day, uh, there were pews with doors and locks. You've heard of this? You, you, really? You, so instead of maybe giving an offering... They had a pew. You'd buy a pew. If you were really rich, you'd buy a front pew. Well, so those are still open, apparently. And then, and then, (laughs) way too fun. Uh, And then the price went down as it went to the back. And so what happened in the day when these people didn't want Charles Simeon as their pastor, the pew holders refused to come and the doors were locked. So other people couldn't, after all, it was your seat. You can't sit in my seat. So if you don't come and then you just leave it locked, you got all these rows that are empty. So guests who would come, would, would, there's empty seats. They'd be standing in the back. And this went on for, that's right, years. And Charles Simeon would show up 
Lord's Day after Lord's Day, open the scriptures, and preach to empty pews and people standing in the back. Well, there were all kinds of things that he endured as God just gave him faithfulness to continue to plod. I think it was him uh, at some point that deacons were so mad at him they locked the church doors. He had to figure out how to get in. Things like that. But, but in his latter years, after having been in the, the role there as pastor for 49 years, a friend wrote to him asking how he had survived all those years of difficulty. Now, most of us have not survived that kind of difficulty. We face others, other difficulties, and you face some today. And so this uh, brother, uh, he wrote back to a friend. Here's what he said. And this, this paragraph I've read years ago and it has stayed with me. That's why I knew right where to go for today. Here's what he wrote. He said, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Jesus' sake. He said, when I am getting through a hedge, you understand England, hedges? When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the prickling on my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head, that's Jesus, has surmounted all of his sufferings and triumphed over death, and let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his glory. Wow, my, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Jesus' sake. Thank you, Charles. Thank you for that. You're right. You're right. He went on to pastor another five years before his time to meet Jesus. But his example of faithfulness, steadiness of his soul, uh, comes down through the ages to us. Well, today, uh, in Hebrews chapter 6, we want to spend time in a paragraph, and we want to talk about the gospel method, the gospel message, and specifically the Christ who is the main feature in the gospel message and the gospel method. But this is a wonderful text. I'm excited to come here with you, and I hope that you will find here that which will anchor your soul. And I would say for us as a church, it's that which must anchor us as a church too. And that's my point today. Okay? So pray with me, please, and let's come to God's word. Our Father, indeed, we live in times where the winds blow and churches, and sometimes people seem to be adrift, uh, awash with the winds and the tides, winds blowing us uh, all kinds of different directions, how we need an anchor, an anchor of the soul, and you provide that. And I pray that you would see, help us to see it in the text today and, and to find our anchor in Christ and him alone. And not only us as individuals, but for us as a church as we begin another ministry year, that the Christ of the gospel and Christ of the gospel method would, would, would just affect everything about who we are and what we do. So, so do this. Do this among us. Uh, guide us in the preaching of your word today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So on your study sheet, there are a few reminders, as always, uh, bringing up to speed those who maybe have missed a week or two. There's a little paragraph about the text today. I mention here, just by way of uh, mentioning the two that will be in Hebrews 6, and then look at 1 Corinthians by way of illustration of, of what we'll see in Hebrews 6. 
But we, we come then to this portion of the book. You'll hear me refer to the writer of the Hebrews book, the book of Hebrews, because we are not sure who that was and is. Uh, and so you'll hear me mention that. Now, by way of context, I want to say a word about this. The book of Hebrews is written uh, to, to believers who were in Rome. That'll be especially important as we get a little later into the text. And it is a, it is a substantive book, and it includes many warnings that make any thinking person sit up and pay attention. He says things like, beware lest you. So, so strong warnings, enough to make you kind of, I mean, check about your faith. Seriously, I mean, strong warnings and words of encouragement. He's writing to people who, who, who faced all kinds of things, very unlike some of the, the cultural circumstances we face, and yet the struggles of faith that are very similar. So chapter 6 begins with one of those warning texts. So much debated, what is he saying here? Well, verses 1 through 8 are that. It's a warning. It's be careful. And then in verse 9, he begins to turn a corner, and we're heading toward the latter part of the chapter, but I just want you to see the flow of thought. Uh, in verse 9, he says, uh, Now, having spoken about this warning stuff, though we speak in this way, uh, yet in your case, we feel sure of better things, things that accompany salvation, things that belong to salvation. So he says, uh, I've spoken strongly, but I, I really believe you guys are in the household of faith. And I'm sure they're saying, oh, good. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you see that. But he wants to give them strong encouragement. So he mentions the promises of God in verse 12, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. Okay? So hear the word of God then as we look at it together. The writer says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And of course, by swearing, we're referring to taking an oath or uh, confirming a promise. Saying, he says, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. Now watch this. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us We have this, that is this hope, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Wow. Okay, so this paragraph then is aimed at the goal of verse 18, that you would have strong encouragement Strong encouragement. That's a fill-in on your study sheet if you do those things. We often encourage others based on nice sentiments and wishful thinking, don't we? If we're going to encourage people, we, we say things like, don't worry, it'll get better, which isn't always true. We say, you can handle it. We say, um, oh, I don't know. What do you say when you want to encourage somebody? Uh, you've got this. I have confidence in you. We write a little note, put a little smiley face on it, gift card to Starbucks which are nice, by the way. <laughs> but we, say, we often encourage like that. Now, this writer takes it to a different level. He doesn't say, you've got this, it's going to get better. Now, some of them might have been burned at the stake and had their heads cut off. 
I'm sure it'll be better. Well, actually, it might be worse. What do you say to people who are in that circumstance? Suck it up? No, he says, I'm going to give you strong encouragement. And he looks at the person and the promise of God. That's the strong encouragement he gives. Uh, I'm going to skip all the fluff. I want to point you to the person and promise of God. If you're going to have strong encouragement when the storms are really blowing, you better hang on to that because all the chipper stuff I say to you, like it'll be better. It's, I'm sure it'll be fine. You know what? Depending on what's going on, it may not be fine at all. And you know that if you're facing something big. Somebody says to you, oh, don't worry. What are you talking about? It won't be fine and it won't be better anytime soon. So don't even say that. Do you have anything else? Well, yeah, I'm going to give you the person and promise of God. And so that's, that's what he does. Now, I want to just kind of work with you through the text for a moment. What is he talking about? He's, he's, a Jewish crowd will quickly understand the story of Abraham. A, less, uh, a, Jewish crowd, a non-Jewish crowd might be less familiar with these things. But he's referencing the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And I just want to remind you of some of these things. And this will make sense of the text. God made a promise to Abraham. He did. Apparently he did. This is in Genesis 12. You find what we often call the Abrahamic covenant. That's the place where God begins this conversation with Abraham, where he says, um, go to a land that I'll show you, and I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'll bless you, and, and so on. He gives three promises, land, seed, blessing to Abraham, 75 years old at the time. Land, seed, blessing. I'm going to, pro- I'm going to bless you. I will. And, of course, if you're going to have descendants, you need to have children. And, as you know, Abraham and Sarah had, had no children. Well, that's, that's the beginning of Genesis 12. Some of those promises are repeated or fleshed out a bit in Genesis 13. Then you get to Genesis 15. This is a wonderful text. It's, a, it's, it's, it's one of the Old Testament chapters that just kind of rises to the top by the number of times it's repeated in the New Testament, okay? So in Genesis 15, this is the place where God says to Abraham, listen, step outside, look at the sky at night. What do you see? It's the the stars. It's the Milky Way. And God says to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. In other words, you you could count the stars before you could count the number of your descendants. He says to a childless man, and Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, what's it say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. Now, Paul, of course, repeats that numerous times all over the New Testament. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then, and then the story goes on, this very interesting little scenario. It's, it's unfamiliar to us because we don't do things like this. But, but it fit the culture and the times. Um, they were going to make this cut a covenant is the, more the literal idea of it. And so what you did is you, you took some animals and you, I mean, it's a bloody ceremony, you, you separated them in half, like two parts. And you put the parts on the side, and the idea was that you would walk with the person with whom you're making a, a covenant. The idea symbolically being, may I be like one of these poor little animals if I break my word. And as you read in Genesis 15, what happened is this deep darkness and, and terror fell on Abraham, and, and my goodness sakes, he, he didn't walk through those, through those, those animal parts but a, like a light uh, symbolizing the very presence of God moved through those parts. Okay, what, what, did that, what was the point of that? It was, God, it was God making it. He'd already made a promise. It was God making an oath, unilateral, a unilateral covenant. You understand a unilateral covenant? 
uh, if there's two parties, then it depends on both of you. If there's a unilateral one, one party made the covenant, God made the covenant. God made the oath. That's the point of that. It's in Genesis 15. You can read that this afternoon uh, over a cup of coffee. So God, the presence of God, moved between those animal parts. Striking, amazing story. God making, having made a promise, and then swearing. Now, the idea here, it talks about swearing by something greater. We we get this today. uh, In past years, at least in our country, people would swear by placing their hand on a Bible. I'm sad to see that idea going away. What was it based on? Well, you're swearing by something greater than you, right? Saying, I'm telling the truth. So help me God was the, at least the, what it used to be. You swear by something greater. That's the point of the text. So by whom or by what would God swear an oath? I made a promise. Now, how do I, I swear by, 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 Correct point. God, there's nobody greater than God. So he swore by himself, saying, I'll, I'll keep my word. This is, I made you a promise, and that should be good enough, and I swore by myself, I will do what I said. I will fulfill my promise. And then, of course, you look ahead, book of Genesis. Isaac is born. Yitzhak, the laughter. He makes me laugh. God kept his promise now a couple of decades later, 25 years later, Abraham and Sarah welcomed Isaac to their home. God kept his promise then. He keeps his promises today. That is what the writer here is, is referring to. God made a promise. God make a, made a promise. Then he comes down there. This is supposed to be strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, this hope as a sure and steady anchor. Okay, I want to talk about anchors, right? I brought one today. I had to work to find this. It's an anchor. Um, of the guys who were here yesterday at our men's breakfast know that because I was, here's a pun, I was fishing around for an anchor. I was looking for an anchor. Uh, who's got an anchor? I need an anchor for Sunday morning. And, uh, so, and Joella, Joella's, she gets the prize. She's wearing an anchor because Nathan was here yesterday. 58 guys were here yesterday, by the way, in this room as we talked about what it means to follow Christ. Well, super. Well, an anchor. I did some study this week on an, on anchors and anchoring and the the science and art of anchoring. I've never served in the Navy. Some of you did. If you do, uh, if you've got that in your background, you know more about this than I do. You're going, Ugh, what does he know? Well, I know a lot because I Googled it, and I, I, <laughs> I've got this. I printed off what originally was a 26-page document by some guy with an, I didn't know this. He's got an MBA in shipping and logistics. An MBA? In shipping and logistics. All right, I trust him. Uh, 19 years experience, and he wrote this guide to anchoring a ship. Who knew that it would be 26 pages long? Well, uh, it's a deal. So he's talking about, and this is a small one, he's talking about the, the, the way it works to anchor a ship. Okay, what kind of boat is this for? How do you know? How do you know it's for a small boat? Small anchor, now, yeah, okay, good, good, you guys are on this. Now, for those of us who are rookies and have not Googled it, you'll know that this is, this it swivels because the idea is that when it goes to the ground, to the bottom of the seabed, it will, it will go like this, and then you'll pull it a little ways, and these flukes will dig in. Now, as this gentleman will say, uh, you really want sand on the bottom, not mud, and then it'll, then it'll be firm. Now, of course, part of an anchor, if you understand large vessels, you know that the weight of the chain is a part of this, and the length of the chain. So you don't just anchor this way, vertically. 
No, if you're on a big, really big boat, you're going to be a ways away, but your anchor's going to be over here. And then when it's time to pull it up, you want to pull it this way, I guess. And it, anyway, it comes up. It's what they tell me. What do I know? I'm not a Navy guy. But I, I read about it, and I'm sure it's correct. Now, I want to read you just a couple things, because as I, I'm making a point here. In this guide to anchoring of a ship, um, apparently it's quite a, quite a thing. Meaning, if you do it wrong, there was an embedded video saying, this is what it looks like when it goes wrong. And, uh, I mean, the, the winch is on fire, and people are running, and they lose the whole anchor. Big chains. And it goes whipping around and about kills somebody. And it's like, wow, that was fun. Play that again. Well, there are several things now. When I read uh, this guy's guide to anchoring a ship, he's not talking about Jesus at all. But I thought it so interesting as I read Hebrews 6. So he's got a section here, number one, how an anchor holds a ship. It's a guide to how it works. It's like anchoring 101 for dummies. He talks about it. This hits the ground. This is what happens. It doesn't matter from what height it's dropped. Okay, that's good. He mentions it's not always just about the weight but, and, and, and all that. But the, uh, number two, so, section two, the holding power of anchors. And I started going, oh, what is this? The holding power due to the way the anchor is formed, the construction of the anchor. That's important. And he talks about what it's like, the size of the flukes and so on, the holding power of anchors due to the seabed, due to the anchor chain. He walks you through saying, here's how it works. Here's what makes an anchor firm. You got to have the right anchor. You got to have the right chain, length, and all of this. You got to do it right. And right away, I'm thinking, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus. Now, I'm assuming that all of those things, well, on this guy's mind, were not on the writer to Hebrews' mind, because this is written today. But here's the thing. In New Testament uh, writing time, anchors were understood a little bit. There are four references to anchors in the New Testament. Did you know that? In two texts. One, well, clearly, Hebrews 6. This is one of them. The other three show up in the book of Acts, chapter 27. That's the story of the Apostle Paul's ill-fated voyage to Rome. So uh, he is, um, he's, he's out sailing, you know, and it's, there's, there's a storm comes up. And in Acts 27, uh, he tells a story about how they dropped four anchors off the back of the boat during, in a storm. And then a little later, the soldiers pretended like they were going to go out in this other boat ostensibly to drop off anchors off the front. So anchors are mentioned in Acts 27 and here. Now, hang on to that. There's, there's, a, there's a point we'll, we'll make here. But there's something about having the right anchor, the right chain, and the, the right seabed. And I put on your study sheet here in this little section you have in front of you, holding power. Holding power means everything. Uh, in this article by, uh, from online about anchoring, there's a picture of, uh, I think it's Singapore, the anchorage at Singapore. Dozens and dozens of ships lying at anchor. Can you imagine if one of them was not anchored correctly and the wind blew? These are oil tankers, con- uh, cargo ships, dozens and dozens of them all in the same bay. And their safety depends on the, the correct anchoring. Okay. Now, again, I'm not assuming that this is written by Paul, and I'm not assuming that the writer understood all of that, except that in ancient sailing, they did get this. 
So look again at verses 18 and 19. This strong encouragement. He says, we have this, what, this what? This hope. This hope. It's about Christ. It's the gospel. We have this hope as a sure and steady anchor of the soul. Here's the, look at the whole analogy. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, what is this about? Well, not only are we talking about Abraham, but there's a reference here that by analogy, the inner place behind the curtain. This is a reference to the Old Testament tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, which the writer to Hebrews does a whole lot with all of this. The Holy of Holies was the place, it was a part of the place where they worshiped God back then, the holy place, and then the holy of holies, where the, this is in Leviticus, if you want to read it, you find it in Leviticus, where once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, right? The high priest would go into the holy of holies, behind the curtain. He'd go in there once a year with the blood of an animal, and he would sprinkle the blood on the, the mercy seat. That was the top of the Ark of the Covenant. This is, just go back to Old Testament times, and you read about it all. So, so you sprinkle blood there once on the Day of Atonement, once a year, to cover his, high priest back then, his own sin, because he was a sinner, and the sins of the people. And in the book of Hebrews, you find Christ as a greater high priest, not a sinner like all of us, that he went in, the writer will tell us, with blood, not, 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 not the animal's blood, his own blood, into the very presence of God, and his own blood then on the mercy seat covers, not just for a time, not just for a year, permanently, all those who draw near to God. Exactly. You don't have to, you don't have, to have somebody once a year go take care of you. Jesus did it once and, and for all. And, and now, with that, now, look at this. This hope enters into the inner place behind the curtain, this anchor. Okay, okay, work with the imagery. You got an anchor, you got a chain, and it's attached to something. So the anchor is between your soul with a big old cable all the way where? Into the very presence of a holy God. This is supposed to anchor your soul, this hope. That's, that's the analogy that's played out here. This sure and steady anchor of the, of the soul, a hope that enters by this big old cable chain into the inner place behind the, behind the curtain. That's the place where Jesus' blood, in, in that figurative sense, he died on the cross, but it was, it was Hebrews plays it all out right into the presence of God, covers our sin once and for all. And, and this, this is the gospel, anchors my soul. Why? Because <laughs> I'm forgiven by God. I'm forgiven by a holy God. I can live with confidence. I, can, I, I, I know that I'm held on to by him. I got this anchor chain. It's connecting me to him, and he will not let me go. Oh, no, he, he will not let me go. We have a song that says that. He will not let you go. You are anchored. You are anchored. You know Christ? You are anchored to him. And may I say, the holding power of that anchor, a little better than this one. Holding power. Yeah, buddy. That's what I'm talking about. You know any, any songs come to mind that use this analogy? If you're my generation, you remember, uh, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fasten to the rock. It cannot move. Um, will your anchor hold in the storms of life? Uh, I've anchored my soul in the haven of rest. More contemporary, someone mentioned to me first time, in the eye of the storm, the analogy of an anchor. You heard it earlier today, right? 
an anchor, an anchor of the soul. It's a, it's a, it's a vivid picture. There's another song that's newer. Uh, I have a sure and steady anchor. I love that. That's another one that I listen to a lot. I have a sure and steady anchor. It's probably uh, five, maybe years old. I have a sure and steady anchor. It's a picturesque way of saying, no, Christ, Christ is holding on to me. Okay? Now, I, I want to illustrate this by a quick trip to, to, to 1 Corinthians. This gospel message and gospel method, I'm saying, must anchor us. And there's the picture from Hebrews 9, or sorry, Hebrews 6, verses 19-20, about how that is intended, how God intends that to work. This gospel is supposed to anchor us. But I, want to, I just want to briefly go back to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to visit chapter 1 briefly, and then chapter 15, and say just a couple more things then as we pull it together. But 1 Corinthians, as you recall from a preaching series where we went through the whole book, and we referenced this a week ago, talking about God's glorious and messy church. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a very troubled local congregation, a local church. And they had all kinds of stuff going on and going wrong. Divisions among them, ethnic divisions, cultural divisions, racial things going on, legal things, people suing each other, sexual immorality, and, and on you go. And this book, though, is, a, is about the gospel. It is. Because Paul addresses all their problems by taking them to Jesus. He does it at the beginning. Okay, I'm in chapter 1. I just want you to see how he begins with the gospel, works the gospel through the book, and concludes with it. I'm just going to go to the beginning and the end. I just want to, to make my point. But he, he, he addresses them in all their mess with the gospel. So in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched by him in all speech and, and knowledge. Uh, goes on from there, the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ into verse 7, who will sustain you? Jesus will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. Look at that. That's the gospel. He's going to sustain you. Guiltless. How do you like that word above your head? Guiltless, guiltless, would you like that? On the day that you stand before God, in the day, he says, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing that to totally messed up people. Guess what? You're going to show up someday with a, whether it's a, a crown or a little nameplate under you, you, you know, like you have mug shots, you know, here's your, uh, guiltless, you're going to go, yes, yes, because it's true about, because of Christ. Guiltless, uh, Jude, of course, faultless, faultless, we, we talk about able to present as faultless. But here, here he begins with the gospel. Then, of course, in verse 10, he starts right in. I appeal to you, brothers, that there not be divisions among you. Okay, let's talk about your problems. In each case, he addresses their problem. He corrects it with the gospel. He goes right back to, to the preaching of the cross in verse 18. Spends a bit of time on that. Uh, chapter 2 begins with a verse that I reference, though I won't comment on it. I don't think later... Uh, this morning into returning to God's word. There's a reference here about why it was so important that Paul preached Christ. And he says in chapter 2, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That doesn't mean the only thing he preached was the gospel, specifically death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He talked about a lot more. But it means this, that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, it, it flavored everything Paul preached. Everything. He preached about a lot of stuff, but everything he preached was gospel error. See, 
and influenced everything they did. That's the, the point of that. I go to Genesis, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, and we've covered a lot of territory in the in-between chapters. He's, he's spanked them good and addressed a lot of stuff, and here in chapter 15, he comes back. Now I want to remind you, he says, of the gospel. So he begins with the gospel. He corrects them with the gospel. He wraps it up with the gospel, with gospel hope. Specifically, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, I delivered you as a first First importance, what I also received, Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he started. He appeared to Peter and then the 12 and then a whole bunch of other people. And finally, he appeared to me, Paul says. He appeared to me. Wow, the gospel, the gospel. So I put on your study sheet here, what do you give struggling, hurting, and sinful people? What do you give them? What do you give them? Well, you give them the gospel. You give them Christ. You do. He is our only hope. You don't dish out just lectures. You don't give them lollipops. You don't give dollar bills. None of those things fix the human heart. And I, I, I belabor that point if necessary because I mentioned, again, this little paragraph. Do you see how Paul counsels and corrects them? He corrects problems with, with the gospel. I don't mean problems with the gospel. That's Galatians. As we'll, we'll start going there next week. He corrects problems with the gospel. He concludes with gospel hope. And instead of using, and here's my cool little list, anger, shame, finger-in-your-face lectures or comparisons, guilt, uh, or any of our other favorite methods for helping people change, I I say that, I intend it to be tongue-in-cheek and maybe bring a smile from you, because those are our favorite methods, aren't they? Uh, Some of you, maybe more my generation than, than other generations that now know better, I say that tongue-in-cheek too, uh, some of you were raised with um, things like this. Now, shame on you, young... Well, it's my sisters. Shame on you, young lady. Right? I was next to the youngest. I learned a lot by seeing what they got in trouble for. If you're smart uh, and you're younger, you can watch and go, Oop, don't ever do that. <laughs> don't talk like that. Woo. Hide behind the couch and pay attention. You get in less trouble. It's not because you're a better kid. It's just that you saw what didn't work. Right? But, but he, work with me on this. Uh, Anger, shame, and finger-in-your-face lectures rarely change your heart. And you can take that to the bank. Have you ever really had your heart change when someone stuck their finger in your chest and said, don't you dare ever? Did that ever change your heart? Usually, you can change behavior that way with good threats, especially when there's good follow-through. Man, I'll change your behavior like no, no, nobody's business. But, but if you're like me on the other end of that finger... Your little heart, because you're a sinner, can say, oh, you want to bet. And sometimes our kids are doing that, too. So there's a time for finger in the face. Don't worry. There's a time for some of those other... I get it. But, but, but true heart change, the way we change, people change, we really need Jesus to change our hearts, and you do, too. You need Jesus to change your heart. See, you need the gospel. You need the Christ of the gospel to change your heart. Um, Otherwise, you can change your behavior, which is okay too, I guess. But if it's only your behavior that changes and not your heart, nothing's really been fixed. Isn't that right? Yeah. Well, Paul, Paul takes the gospel there. Now, I go to the part called responding to God's word, and just think with me about a couple of things here. I'm referring back now to Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, returning to the idea of an anchor, um, I say, in this world adrift, the church of Jesus Christ offers the strongest possible anchor, and that is Christ. 
I, I, on my first little note here on your study sheet, I, I put it uh, a certain way, the wording, for the church, the Christ of the gospel is our anchor. I wanted to put it that way rather than the gospel as our anchor because I wanted specifically to call out that when we think about the gospel, uh, which is a term I love, we're not just talking about a code or a form or a fill-in-the-blank here, your name, or a little, a little doctrinal statement that just is words. I don't mean that. Um, ultimately, when we say the gospel, I want us to be thinking of a person that is the person of Jesus. Okay? So when you, I, I use the term gospel a lot, yes, I, and I hope you do too, but we never want to start thinking that that's just like a formula, say, to get to heaven. The gospel is about Christ. There's a person. It's Christ who saves, not a formula. Okay? So I, I put it that way on purpose. Now, Christ, Christ, the anchor of the soul. And I said here, uh, the Hebrew Christians got it. And what do I mean by that? I just want to tell you a little story. Uh, this, uh, again, I've read it, so I'm assuming it's true. I haven't been there myself. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians in Rome. And in Rome, underneath the city, there are these places called the catacombs, which are like tunnels and hiding places and so on. Some of you perhaps have been there. They were places that the early Christians often used to hide, to, to worship together. Not big groups, typically smaller groups in the dark, maybe candles and little lanterns or something, because there you could worship and not get in trouble. Well, in, in one section of the catacombs in Rome, if you were to visit it today, you would see, oh, some people are buried in there, but there are different symbols carved into the rock, the walls. There's a shepherd over here and some of the other biblical symbols, sheep, things like that, familiar in the Bible. There's also an anchor carved. Several places there's an anchor. Why, why would that be carved in the rock underneath, underneath Rome? What, what, what books in the Bible would they have read? What letters would they have read that refer to an anchor? And there's only one. It's this, this text. This is it. Where, where Christ is presented as an anchor. And I, I can't prove any of this. I, I can prove that. But I can't prove this. This is speculation on my part. But I wonder these things. Jay's brain. Dangerous. I wonder. Okay, letter comes to the Hebrews in Rome. I wonder if there was a group of people down there by candlelight reading this. Can you imagine being the first recipients of this kind of a letter? And they're huddled for fear of persecution. Maybe others of your group not here this week because that one got taken and that one got taken. Here you are, right, with brothers and sisters, and someone reads this. Listen, listen. We have this hope as a sure and steady anchor of the soul. Okay, how would that hit you? It's Christ. He's entered the veil. I can picture this group of Christians going, that's my hope. That's my, it's not, it's going to get better. It's not hope, pray for a nice president. It's none of that. It's Christ. This, this hope enters the inner place behind the curtain. And maybe, again, <clears throat> excuse me, conjecture, maybe when that's, that reading is done, a little sermon or exhortation to follow, maybe some sixth grade kid pulls out his little pocket knife, if he had such, and goes over the wall and says, that's right, Christ is my anchor and sketches it into the rock. I, again, I wonder that. I wonder that. But somebody did. Somebody heard that as an analogy and sketched an anchor in the rock. 
Christ, Christ. And I, I wonder this first for you. Um, a world adrift. The winds blow, and they do. What is your anchor? Is Christ your anchor? Are you anchored to him by faith in Jesus, trusting Christ in him alone? We've, the, the text says we fled. We fled for refuge. It is we've ava- abandoned all other hope. My hope isn't in any other place, any other thing, including me being, you know, extra nice. I've, I've, I've fled for refuge to Christ. I've abandoned all other hope. That's the idea. I've run away from it all. Is that you today, trusting Christ and him alone is your savior from sin, anchored to him? I hope so. I hope that's you. If it's not, I'd love to talk to you about what that means to trust Christ and him alone is your savior from sin. I say this to all of us as a church, too, and that's the reason we wanted to come to this text today. The gospel message and the gospel method must anchor us. That means as a church, we breathe gospel error. Every ministry we do all of our interactions. Are we perfect? Oh, no. Oh, goodness. Uh, not by far. But gospel air is our goal. Everything we do permeated, coffee time in the foyer, to, to all of our areas of ministry, to how we handle discipline with our children, how we interact with one another, just bathed, bathed in the gospel. That's what we want to be. And I pray that God would just, you know what, not only today, but raise up beyond us, behind us, um, other generations who will make sure that Sunset Bible Church for the years ahead is anchored with Christ. Those of us who lead and those of us who attend today will not always lead and attend. There will be other people come behind us. And it is regularly my prayer that this will be a church not only that teaches the gospel and is, is, is infused with the gospel now, but for the generations to come. Affected by the gospel message, the gospel method must anchor us. I want to pray for us to that end. If you would stand with me, please. I want to pray. <clears throat> Father, as we head into another ministry year, it is our prayer that the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes, the words of the gospel and gospel air itself just would would run through this church, work its way into every class, every conversation, every meeting, the way we think, the way we plan, the way we pray, the way we interact in our families, gospel air, gospel air affecting our words, our word choice, the appetites and loves of our hearts. Father, your, your, your word, your word, absolutely, your life-giving word, defining us, your church, your glorious, messy church, shaping us, gospel, gospel running through every part of us. Oh, God, may it be so. I pray for this congregation in the months ahead as we walk together through life, uh, celebrations, losses, all of these things we, we know are coming. But we trust you as our anchor. Thank you, Lord, for the morning. Encourage these dear people as they head out for another week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a good week. We'll see you very, very soon. Galatians, next week as we get started.